potential and possibilities, discussions with fascinating people, designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome everybody again to another episode of our show, bringing you another awesome guest today, uh, focusing on creating a better tomorrow for so many people out there. Um, we are honored today to be joined by none other than Dr. Doris Taylor, uh, Chief Executive Officer of Organimet Bio. Uh, a early phase startup that's committed to saving lives and reducing the cost of healthcare for those with heart disease uh, and have a very ambitious goal to make personalized bioengineered human hearts available to all that need them within the next five years, uh, ultimately increasing availability and access to hearts, uh, decreasing or eliminating uh, the need for immunosuppression and reducing total lifetime transplant cost and improving quality of life. Uh, Dr. Taylor has had a, an amazing uh, career over the last few decades. She previously was the director of the Regenerative Medicine Research uh, and director of the Center for Cell and Organ Biotechnology at Texas Heart Institute uh, down in Houston, where she worked on these, uh, you know, I'll call these bleeding edge tools for the integration of regenerative medicine and tissue engineering. Uh, she has her PhD in pharmacology from University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. She did her postdoc studies at Albert Einstein uh, College of Medicine, uh, where she first started working with tissue engineering, growing the heart muscle cells in the lab. She was on the faculty at Duke uh, from 1991 to 2007 and moved to the University of Minnesota, where uh, her team in 2008 published really seminal work uh, in nature medicine when they created uh, these new beating rat hearts using a combination of tissue engineering, uh, first stripping uh, dead, dying cells from an existing heart uh, in a process called decellularization and, and leaving an extracellular matrix behind and then reseeding them uh, with young uh, new stem cells uh, starting the hearts beating uh, like new again. Uh, Dr. Taylor is also the co-founder and an original board member of Mira Matrix Medical. Uh, her work has been published uh, in numerous journals, uh, Nature Medicine, Circulation, Journal of Molecular Biology, that list goes on and on. Uh, and uh, she is then additionally, you know, she is a member of uh, numerous professional affiliations, including the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the American Heart Association, the Federation of American Societies for Experimental Biology, uh, as well as Society for Women's Health Research, cardiovascular working group and the organization for the study of sex differences. Uh, she also recently served as on the executive committee for the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine. We have a lot of really exciting and interesting things to talk with her about today. Uh, so without any further ado, Dr. Doris Taylor, welcome to our show. Thank you. Ira. Wow. It's a real pleasure to be here. It's always fun to talk with you and, and it's especially fun in uh, at now when the world's changing. Science is, is back on 
track to uh, people are back in the lab and it's really nice to be here. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's great seeing you again. Uh, you know, I, I, I've I've known you for a couple of decades now. I, I'm a big fan and follower of, of your work, um, and and it's really it's interesting to see not just how your work's evolved, but your bio has has continually evolved and grown at the same time. So uh, that, that's awesome. Um, you know, Josh, I, I would love to just you know before we get into to all things um, tissue engineering and stem cells and, and hearts and all that, I I, I want to start off some uh, sort of a different place today. Day because I um you know I, I follow you on the social media and you know a couple of days ago you posted something very interesting you were um uh, you were talking about uh, in general talking about sort of where we are in terms of uh, heart disease in in this post COVID era uh, and you you know we have this huge number out there that's forty eight percent of the United States population of having some type of heart disease. But for some reason, um, even though it's number one killer alongside there with cancer, we're just not talking about it in 2022 for some reason. Uh, we look at cancer, we look at all these amazing things that are going on in, in immuno-oncology and smart drugs and, and what have you, and, and we feel such passion and sympathy for the folks with cancer. But on the other side of that equation, we the people with heart disease, it's almost a, shame, a badge of shame. You know, We didn't exercise enough, we didn't eat right. You know, sort of where are we? Why are we in this place we're at uh, in 2022 with our sort of public perception of heart disease? Sure. I, I you know, I think a lot about that because uh, I, you know, I've studied heart disease for the last three decades. I'm also a cancer survivor. And I think about, and, and so I know the different gestalt of the two of those. And ironically, after I had cancer for a couple of days after, after, or when I had cancer, after I had my surgery for a couple of days, I had a heart issue. And, and the heart issue scared me a heck of a lot more than the cancer did because, because number one, uh, if, if, if that went bad, it didn't matter whether or not we could treat my cancer, we were done, right? But I think about I think about the two and and I give lectures a lot or I used to give a lot more lectures and and one day I said, okay, everyone in the room, how many of you know it was a it was to actually the Laura Bush Society and I said and so it was primarily women. I said, how many of you know someone with breast cancer? And a lot of people in the room raised their hand. Right. I said, how many of you know a, wo a woman with heart disease? Virtually no one raised their hand. The reality is five times more women have heart disease and have breast cancer. But we don't talk about it. It's embarrassing because and, and, and I just experienced this recently. I just watched a friend who uh, was diagnosed with cancer, diagnosed with cancer. And at the same time, she was having a, 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 an electrical issue with her heart. She built a caring bridge page for her cancer, didn't want anything about her heart on it. We don't talk about it. And therefore, there's this incorrect perception that it doesn't exist. I think in part, it is because we've spent a lot of our lives being terrified by the word cancer. And cancer has a face. When someone gets cancer and gets seriously ill or, or they progress over a bad trajectory with cancer, we see that. We know what that looks like. 
when people have heart disease and the reality is 48%, that means you or me, right? And I've already said I had a problem after my surgery. The truth is if we looked at our at our vasculature, probably both of us had got a pro you know some degree of a problem. Um, but we don't walk around looking different or feel necessarily feeling different. And by the time you feel different from heart disease, you're usually very, very sick. So I think it's really that, that heart disease doesn't have a face and that we do say, if you ate right, if you exercised, if you did all the right things, you wouldn't get heart disease. You can put heart disease is preventable. Truth is some heart disease is preventable. Good lifestyle choices can reverse your risk. There is no question about that. It's also true for cancer. We don't have those same conversations. So I think it's actually um, a perception that is dangerous because people don't talk about heart disease until someone has a heart attack and either dies or is on this downward trajectory towards heart failure, which ultimately will kill them. And that unfortunately means that we don't pour the resources into finding new cures. You know, I, President Biden just passed a biomanufacturing and biotechnology executive order. It's fantastic. The next day, he, he talked about the cancer moonshot. More people die of heart disease. We don't talk about that. We don't put the resources into that. And we don't put the heart disease drugs, huge market, but we don't allow personalized health care for heart disease to the same degree that we do for cancer either. And that's a different conversation we probably want to have. What... Um... You know, continuing along sort of, you know, where we've been the last couple of years uh, as we've been sort of into and now coming out of this this COVID pandemic. Uh, and I, I'm sitting here, you know, think, thinking about heart heart medicine and so forth. So, you know, I've, I've had slightly elevated systolic blood pressure since I was in my 20s. I've been on an, uh, an, an ACE <laughs> inhibitor of some point uh, for the last couple of decades. Um, those drugs created, you know, decades ago. Um and here we have a virus that, you know, loves to play around and get into our cells through that ACE2 receptor. Right. Um, talk a little bit about also some of what you've been, you know, we're going to get into regenerative medicine, I promise you, sure. in a couple of minutes. But right. say no. a few words about COVID, heart disease, and a little of the, uh, the molecular biology in this domain that you've been looking at as this pandemic has sort of swamped all of us the last couple of years. Sure. sure. Well, first of all, COVID is a virus. And as you said, it, it, but, but truly COVID is a vascular disease. You know, when you, when you look at the consequences of COVID, whether it's, whether it's uh, uh, losing your sense of taste and smell or brain fog or, or uh, lung injury, or now some of the some of the renal cardiovascular complications down the road, myocarditis. All of that is become, in in my opinion, this is my opinion. I but my opinion is 
the vast majority of all of that is because COVID causes localized vascular effects and the target is whatever the target is in your body. And my sense is COVID, COVID caused a massive inflammation. And if you could fight that inflammatory response appropriately, you could, to some degree, deal with that virus, heal it, move on. However, there were people that were in one of two situations. Either they didn't have the immune system to fight it and they got severely ill, or they had the best immune system known to humankind and they fought the virus in a way that actually attacked their body. And so we were in this situation where, where not good enough got you in trouble, too good got you sometimes even in worse trouble, and somewhere in the middle, you had to deal with the consequences down the road. It's all an inflammatory conversation. All of what we're talking about starts with a local injury that our body can't heal. Because the vasculature is the common thread that feeds everything in our body, the heart is upstream of which, you, 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 everything's at risk. And probably, and I'm, again, I'm making this up, but that's what you get to do when you're thinking about ideas. Probably where you had some degree of pre-existing inflammatory response already may have been where you had the potential for the virus to attack more locally. I don't know that we know that. I think there are a lot of, but we do know that many, many, many of the therapies that have worked were therapies that tried to short circuit that aberrant inflammatory response that you wanted to get enough, but not too much. And I think the the, the long-term consequences in many people are, are trying to heal that 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 localized vascular injury down the road and the, and because and the and the local areas that were affected secondary to that inflammatory local inflammatory response i i, I appreciate you sharing your thoughts on that i mean it is a you know it, it is one of those sort of as you were saying it's one of those vasculature cardiovascular you know domains now that didn't exist a couple of years ago well, and now folks like you have to think about so and i i do and appreciate the con it. and 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 cardiovascular disease going up post covid yeah you know the consequences are significant the we two things happened that directly that i i was aware of directly during covid one uh people couldn't get the cardiovascular care that they needed hospitals were otherly other Wise focused physicians were otherwise focused. People didn't go to the doctor, so people put off chest pain. They put off going to the doctor. They put off going to the hospital. So the consequences were that people showed up at the hospital later. If they did have an urgent cardiovascular event, and colleagues of mine said they saw people 
who with condition with post heart attack conditions, for example, that they hadn't seen since the 60s or 70s because people knew to get to the hospital within a, an hour or two hours. And that just didn't happen during COVID. So we're having to deal with people who are sicker now because they waited longer to get treatment. Okay. So they couldn't get the drugs. That's number one. Number two, there, there are a lot of vascular consequences. And, and, and as we all know, one of the most serious organs, one of the organs in your body that's most seriously affected when there's a vascular issue is your heart, because it's the one organ that can't go more than four hours without perfect blood flow or you have cells that start dying. And so there, there are more, I think people got more cardiac, more, there's going to be more heart associated injury. And then there was the whole myocarditis piece. Yep. So put all that together. And especially if you're considering cardiovascular disease, mm, the incidence is almost exponential. Oh, the other thing that didn't happen during COVID was organ transplants. Yeah. <clears throat> yep. Um, so there's one. I I visited you. I was looking here. I visited you up at University of Minnesota back in 2008, um, right after uh, you published the original. Uh, rat uh, paper. Um, and, you know, so here we are in 2022, and you know, thinking back at that time, you know, you you would give me a slide presentation. You know, aside from the uh, the the resell desell work that you were doing, you know, you brought up that that classic chart that you use in terms of everybody that's on the waiting list for hearts, kidneys, livers, lungs, and so forth, um, who's going to die on that list, and, and how many sort of are aching to get on the list, millions, um, you know, across these different organ systems. And at the time, you know, we discussed um, sort of the, the three technology baskets that are out there that, you know, potentially offer us uh, a unique future. Uh, and, and these consisted of your work, the cell resell work, uh, which we'll be getting into, um, bioprinting, and then of course the Xeno uh, folks. And, you know, Tony Atala came on a couple months ago, updated us there in terms of bioprinting. I had uh, David Cooper and, and Bob Montgomery on talking about, you know, this first Xeno transplantation work. Um, Talk a little bit about, I mean, obviously all these tools are going to be useful to us. Yours is going to be you're, you're exceptionally useful. Um, talk a little bit about how you look at these this technology tool set in 2022. And also, are, are you surprised? Because, you know, if I, if I made my bets back then. I, I I don't know if I would have guessed that, you know, we'd be seeing Xeno uh, work happening at this level at this point. But, you know, uh, you know it, it's, it's all exciting. Um, talk a little bit about the uh, bioengineering, the artificial bioengineering landscape, uh, as you've seen it evolve from when we chatted in 2008 to where we are today. What surprises you? What hasn't surprised you? Please. Yeah, sure. So first of all, thanks for, for giving me this opportunity to talk about this. And again, these are, these are, this is my worldview, yeah. right? It's my opinion. Please. But, but, and, Zeno. Let's start with Zeno. Mm -hmm. Zeno has moved forward, but Zeno has been in 
uh, people have been working on Xeno for about 40 years. Mm -hmm. It's not new. Nope. In fact, it's older than what I'm doing. Uh, and so finally, it's culminated in a transplant. However, as we know, that patient didn't live very long, and that patient succumbed to a virus that was present in the pig heart. Mm -hmm. And we can I want to come back to that because I think that's really important and really key. But about Zeno and the progress of Zeno, I want to say a couple things. One, it's been that's something the research has been underway for four decades. It's it has moved forward, sometimes incrementally, sometimes exponentially. But like everything, it depends on the tools that are available. And as the tools to do more molecular editing and gene editing of cells happened, it enabled the field, that field to move more quickly, right? Because all of a sudden you could get rid of some pig genes that were a problem and you could add in some human genes to make it less of a problem. That being said, we're not there yet with that either, right? Sure. Um, but but another, another point I want to make is motivation and resources are a big driver in this field, right? And when you look at the uh, company that, that did the heart transplant recently, my understanding is, is that company was started to build Xeno lungs. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And that company was started to build Xeno lungs by a per, an individual who had a personal motivation to get there. Yep. Right. By Jove, your personal, if you're, if you're driven, if it's your life or someone you love's life, it's amazing how much faster you can make things move and <laughs> how many hurdles you can jump in a day when all of a sudden the consequences are higher, right? So I think part of that is acknowledging that there were exceptional people doing exceptional things for exceptional reasons to get it, to, to, lead, to move this technology forward at, uh, at, a, at a pace that otherwise wouldn't have happened. That's my opinion. And, and I think, um, I think that's admirable. I think that's amazing. And I think it just shows that <clears throat> if we put the right resources, the right energy, the right people into this, we could move these fields a lot faster. Mm -hmm. That's one. When it's no longer a research endeavor, when it's every day you've got a name behind it, it changes how you do this work. That's my, that's, what I would say about Zeno. Mm -hmm. That being said, Zeno still has its issues, right? Sure. We it's still a it's still a pig organ. It still requires immunosuppression. It gives you the opportunity to get access to something you couldn't otherwise to which you couldn't otherwise get access, but it's not a human heart right. or a hu human liver or a human lung or a human kidney. It's still a pig kidney. And and 
one of the experiences I've had recently has been the number has been outreach from a number of transplant patients who have said to me, Doris, transplant saved my life, but the life I live now is not pretty. And I think we need to tell that story too. Xeno is not going to change that. 3D bio, let's switch. But on the other hand, everything we learn with Xeno from the, from the, uh, you know, thank goodness there's someone out there pioneering a path through the regulatory agencies, through the, uh, through the immunosuppression that is needed, through the preclinical studies, through all of those things. And I give, I give uh, Martin Rothblatt a lot of credit for doing that and really changing the barrier for all of us in this field. Mm -hmm. Because the truth is until that happened, nobody's really had an artificial organ transplanted. Okay. And then and and then that brings me to 3D printing. You know, 3D bioprinting has a lot of potential. And and I don't know if you saw again Martin's revelate uh demonstration recently of a 3D bioprinted human lung. Mm-hmm. That human lung, she said, contained, and I, I may get the number wrong, 400 trillion voxels. Or, you know, 400 trillion. And went from, from taking something like six months to print to taking 35 hours to print. So again, if anyone in the world is going to push that boundary, it's someone who's very strongly motivated to get a solution, right? Mm -hmm. That being said, 3D bioprinting with that one exception, and again, I didn't, I I haven't seen the histology on that, so I don't know, but, and, and I didn't see, I don't think, I don't think that, I don't know if that had cells in it. I think it was just a matrix. But all that being said, she claimed they got a vascular tree that was reasonable. Until then, until a couple of months ago, that's been the rate limiting step with 3D printing. You can build something small, very small and complex, or you can build something large and simple, but you can't build a vascular tree you can't 3D print a vascular tree and the cells around it. And that's frankly why I've, I said I could spend 20 years trying to figure out the proteins, the localization of proteins in the heart to get that to then go out to my lab and try to recreate that. Or I could use nature's scaffold that already had all that. And that's why I chose the path I've taken. That being said, we all face basically the same issues. Even if you accept you're trying to build it in an animal, or you're trying to 3D print a scaffold, or you're trying to do decel resell, we all need scaffolds, we all need cells, Mm -hmm. we all need a blood supply. 
And we've all chosen different ways to get those. And then, and then even that's not enough. You need physiology. If you have all that and it doesn't, doesn't function appropriately, doesn't matter. So we all need all of that. And I think I personally have spent the last two decades trying to figure out how to get those reagents mm-hmm. in a way that is, it, 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 first of all, to get those reagents because the tools didn't exist to make right. them. Number two, I've chosen to build personalized organs, so autologous organs, organs that match a given individual's body. And and that raises the bar mm-hmm. of how you have to do it. And then number three, getting I chose heart. Mm-hmm. And heart requires a number of cells that is unimaginable for lung or liver or kidney. Right. But we all need the same things. Yep. No, absolutely. And I... And I... I appreciate you laying the groundwork for all that. And, and, and you know, it, it, it segues perfectly uh, to to you and, and Organimet now, because as you were just saying, um, you know, 2008, you, you perfected decellularization, recellularization. It was that was very close to when induced pluripotent stem cells and Yamanaka did his thing in 2006. That's matured now. Uh, when we talked the last time, as you were just saying about the vascular trees and sort of improve strategies and how to uh, to optimize for that and then growth factors and all the other neat things that happen in the construction uh you know of these cells onto a matrix and what have you take us now into uh the vision for organomet because um, this one's this one's your own now this is your baby um you've been in, in, involved in making other babies along the way uh in terms of uh liver and kidney and so forth but here we are uh president and ceo organomet bio tell us a little bit about the vision for what you're doing now sure organomet bio is is a startup we're we're uh like every startup known to humankind on the road raising the funds to make this real but Organomet Bio capitalizes on everything that I've learned over the last few decades and is about truly beginning manufacturing of heart, moving, moving the academic work that we did, first of all, to, to a business. And then secondly, moving the uh, scale of what we're doing from rat heart, rabbit heart, too small to really be human, scaling up the cells, scaling up the ways to make the scaffold, and and closing and automating a system that lets us build hearts that can survive without what stopped us every time in the lab, which was contamination. Mm-hmm. I, I think we talked, you and I talked, not on a podcast, but by by text or something right after Hurricane Harvey hit Houston. I remember when I was in Houston and, and Hurricane Harvey hit and the air quality went to Hades and every single heart we had going at the time died. Mm because the air quality went bad. You know, even though we had them in, in 
closed systems and closed incubators and biosafety cabinets, that wasn't good enough. And and every time and and the the time cost and energy that when it goes still goes into every single heart is such that you you just can't afford that breach in the system. So let me let me briefly before I go through Organomed, let me briefly tell you what we had to, what we've had to build to get here. Okay. We've had to figure out the reason it took ten years to go from two thousand and eight to where this was really viable was it took us 10 years to figure out how to get the 1 billion cell, cardiac cells we need per gram of heart, mm -hmm. okay? 1 billion per gram of heart. And if your heart weighs on the order of 250 to 350 grams, that's 250 to 350 billion cells. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If I put those cells next to each other, they would stretch out for, for over 11,000 miles. It's a lot of cells. It's, a, it's cells at a scale that no one else had had to build mm -hmm. previously. And the tools didn't exist. Beyond that, because we chose heart, course it was more difficult heart cells don't divide so we had to scale up stem cells and then figure out how to differentiate those tens or hundreds of billions of stem cells and guess what the reagents to do that only come in these little tiny vials that are made for a tissue culture dish yep so all of a sudden Every heart we built cost tens of thousands of dollars when we were only building eight gram hearts, 10 gram hearts. Even those cost tens of thousands of dollars just because the cells were so expensive. That's not sustainable research at an in an academic or non-business environment. That's got to become development rather than research. And that's in part why I started Organomed, because it was clear that the appetite for supporting the slog through this, doing it over and over and over, and uh, growing the cells and scaling up the reagents and closing the system, all the things we had to solve, NIH wasn't going to pay for that. American Heart Association wasn't going to pay for that. That's not that's not academic research as we view it today. That's development. So it had to move to a company. Therefore, I started Organomet. I met in the process. I met Dean Kamen. Yep. And his group at Army Biofab USA, mm -hmm. and they had asked us to provide them a cellular scaffold so that Dean could use them for his first robotics initiative. And because kids love touching those, 
those scaffolds are amazing. You put gloves on, you touch it, and you go, oh my gosh, I just touched a heart. But but wait, that doesn't really feel like a heart. It feels a little bit like a sponge. So so I had met Dean. We had given him decellularized kidneys and livers and, and hearts and lungs, and that's how I got involved. Well, when I, when I started the company, I realized that manufacturing was not my it's not my baby. I, it's not what I know. And it was going to take an, an exquisite amount of process development. And Dean and we had, I had uh, received some grants from Army Biofab. So Organimap moved to Manchester, New Hampshire. Okay. And in the mill yard where Army Biofab exists, and over a period of a year during the pandemic, we actually set up a small scale assembly line for built for all the components we needed to grow these hearts. Now, the cool thing is that I had tried to run my lab previously in a way that we standardized things, um, standardized processes. And, and so we knew what those processes needed to be. What I had no idea about was what tra transitioning those to process development meant, you know, and, and we're always learning, right? Mm -hmm. um, I uh, So Organimat became a startup that was committed to teaching individuals who, some of whom had never seen a heart before in their lives, didn't really know even what cells were, other than having seen them in a, in a small Petri dish, certainly didn't know what a live, what a cell that was beating in a dish looked like, um, to a, a true assembly line of hearts. And that was a it's been a very rewarding process. It's also been <laughs> it's also been a frustrating process because every problem we made at, uh, or every problem we experienced at a research level, we also uh, experienced at a manufacturing level because sometimes people just have to see it to understand what you mean. But it's been a combination of engineers, process developers, biologists student interns um, and and Organimat putting together the infrastructure we need to build these hearts. So now we've done that. We demonstrated in June of this year at Life Itself in a CNN Life Itself Health event mm -hmm. sent in California that we could, in fact, build a 50-gram human heart So from human iPS cells. So we went from zero to that proof of concept in less than a year in Manchester. So something that had taken us 14 years to scale up from three grams to eight grams over two decades, almost two decades of my career, we were able to go from eight grams to 50 grams in less than a year because we automated and, and began to close that process. So it's an exciting time. It convinced me that it's really about doing two things now. It's really about, and Organimat is about building 
Organomat is about building enough of those hearts to move them into large animal studies next. Mm -hmm. Okay, so doing it over and over and over, refining those processes, it, doing the iteration over the next year and a half, 18 months, to have research grade closed automated manufacturing hearts. One important thing, we found the right partners. We found partners like Advanced Solutions, it has a robot, Bab, that can do our cell injections. So it's no longer a person standing there with their dirty hands and their their bunny suit injecting cells. It's a robot that we can sterilize. Mm -hmm. um, so it was about building those closed processes. And now it's about refining those and scaling up again, the cells, and over the next two and a half years, moving the heart from a 50 gram to an 80 gram to 120 gram heart, as we, as we convince ourselves and the world that we can build a, a functional enough heart to keep a pig alive for the period of time that we need to do that. So that's the next phase in this process. But Organic, we re, I, I also have had to learn, you know, the realities of business. The realities of business are this is not going to be an inexpensive endeavor. Yep. One of the first things we're going to have to do is build, bring the cost of goods for this down. And I'm, I, I've learned a lot more about COGS than I ever thought I would. But <laughs> The, the development that we have ahead of us is moving from those tiny vials of reagents that we need to make heart cells out of undifferentiated human iPS cells to be able to, to, to grow those cells at scale for any given individual, to grow that 450 billion at a cost that doesn't make it unreasonable to do. Mm -hmm. However, the first heart we, you know, the the goal is to have that production line within two years, fully functional within two years, okay? 50% um, the first year, the next 50% the second year. The first 200 hearts we build, they're going to cost a lot of money each, each, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and when people say, wow, that's a lot of money, you typically think of a startup and you go, okay, you need $10 million. I'll get my 3X return in, in five years or my 10X return in five years, right? I wish that were true for this. This is going to be more like a $300 million, five years, 10 years, and 100X, 200X return. But it's not, this is not for sissies. This is, this is going to be an expensive endeavor. But what I keep saying to people is, do you really want a heart that beats eh, 40 beats a minute this minute and 20 beats the next minute and 60 most of the time? Or do you want the heart that you can trust minute after minute after minute, day after day after day for the rest of your life? I, I don't want the... Uh, Rube Goldberg version in anyone I care about. I want the version that I've that we've developed appropriately. 
the other cool thing is this continues to be an endeavor where we have to develop new tools and new processes. Today, human iPS cells are immature cells. They're made to be immature. Sure. You differentiate them. You differentiate them into heart cells. They're still immature heart cells. They're not even as mature as newborn heart cells. They're, they don't have the right channels. They don't have the right electrical properties, contractile properties. They're, they're not mature cells. We've had to teach those cells how to grow up in the environment of a heart. Part of my work over the next year is scaling that up, that process up so that we can do that with every heart. And what we know, what we know is, is that you can't just put cells in our scaffold and say, okay, you're an adult heart now. We have to train those hearts over time. And every person's cells are different and every person's training regimen is a little bit different. Just like when you go out and jog on a given day, what, how long it takes me to get to a, uh, to running five miles and how long it takes you to get to running five miles, very different. That's also true with our hearts and with what we have to do to get those all to their five miles, but over either different regimens, sometimes we shoot for the same amount of time, but it takes different training parameters. And so having a team of engineers has been key. One of the advantages of Manchester and Army is that DECA, Dean Kamen's engineering firm, is there. Mm -hmm. And we've been able to capitalize on some great minds there and people who are really excited. I think of Matt, Nick, Stu, and and Zach, and and everyone else who, who made it... Uh, phenomenal. And then what's going to make or break a business in this endeavor right now is, well, of course, visionaries who are willing to fund it or not, but also the supply chain. And the supply chain in the U.S., I mean, can you imagine a scenario where I say, okay, you need a heart in six months, but I can't get the bioreactor pieces? Sorry, can't make you one. It's really going to be about being able to get components that we need, that we trust in a way that is that, uh, with a fidelity that we can trust. And, and I've had to begin to think through just how, how much... Um, Every piece of this is different than it was pre-COVID. You can't just pick up the phone and order a biosafety cabinet and know you're going to get it in a month. You can't just pick up the phone and order the tubing that we used to use all the time and know that it's available. And so I think it I, that's actually part of what excited me the most about President Biden's biomanufacturing uh, announce executive order recently is that potentially we'll get that manufacturing back to the U.S. in a way that prote protects our supply chain again and lets us make these things real.
it's 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 different than research. Research, you can go to the machine shop down the down the way and buy the components that are left over and you can you can put to cobble together something in your in your lab and, and make it work. We don't have that opportunity anymore, which means it's more expensive, slightly more daunting, but also incredibly more exciting because we're getting to the point that this is becoming a reproducible, put the pieces together, step away, come back, and the heart's doing its thing. It's... um. It's amazing to come this far. Not amazing. I I always knew that you, you you would make this happen. And and you know I um a couple of years ago had um, Alex Titus on uh, at Biofab. Um, you know he's off with George Church's group trying to make Woolly Mammoths now. But you know he introduced us at the time to uh, the vision for Biofab, and it's great to see that you're there and and, and part of it. So I mean that's come a long way. And then you know um, I don't know if you got to watch the the uh, the episode I just did with uh, Andy Hebler at the White House, uh, who's you know involved in OSTP and the life sciences. But you know between Biofab, the biomanufacturing initiative, um, ARPA-H, I mean clearly we're at a point where our administration is thinking moonshot stuff, and it looks like the stars are aligning for this to happen in a big way. Um, yeah. So, um, and, you know, it, once again, I don't have to get deep into strategy, but obviously, you know, a lot of companies that are going in these different directions over the years have always had to sort of, you know, go after low-hanging fruit at the same time and create, right. you know, organs on a chip type stuff or assays or whatever. Are you contemplating any of this now or is that is the pure goal? Absolutely. Oh, okay. You know, like everyone, um, like everyone, we've had to go after some lower hanging fruit. Uh, the good news is the things I just told you about make for lower hanging fruit. Yeah. We can... We first of all, we've had to come to understand extracellular matrix. Yep. If you had told me 20 years ago that I was going to be studying what sat outside the cells in the heart, I would have said, nah, not that interested. However, I think even before I left Minnesota, I wrote a paper called The Real Estate Approach to Cell Therapy, Location, Location, Location. And and it the truth is in cardiovascular cell therapy or in any injury, if you, mm -hmm. I'm going to digress just for a second, but if you think about it, when you have an, uh, an injury, that heals from the outside in, not yep. the inside out, yep. right? And I believe it in part heals from the outside in because you get the right resources, the right environment, the right healing environment that moves inward, Okay in part brought there by the blood supply, and some of that is cells. But when when, when we've done cell therapy in the past, we put cells in the center of a scar and said, okay, you're on your own, buddy, do your thing. <laughs> well, I, I think in part, the fact that we saw anything positive was an indication of how powerful the therapy could be if we did it right, right? That being said, We've had to learn about what that correct location is yep. and also learn about 
what actually happens in the heart, secondary to what you were talking about earlier, taking, uh, you know, taking an, uh, uh, drugs for hypertension, hypertension, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, perfect example. Heart failure with preserved ejection fraction is now becoming the most predominant form of heart failure in the world. That is a type of heart failure where your heart can squeeze just fine, but it can't relax well. And so what that means is when it squeezes, it squeezes the blood out that's there, but it can't refill. So you don't get, it doesn't relax enough in that period of time between beats to get enough blood back in to squeeze it all back out again. So you squeeze, but you squeeze a little because there's just not that much there, okay? There are no treatments for that. Well, no approved treatments for that. And for years, we used to call it diastolic dysfunction. Now mm. people call it heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Well, fortunately, we've come to understand some of the molecular pieces of that. But what we came to realize is that cells are in this scarred environment and it may not be a big scar it's a little scar and they're having to push harder against this really stiff extracellular matrix mm -hmm. well what if we can change the extracellular matrix yeah. so one of our first tools is a biologic that is aimed at doing just that it's aimed at recreating a healthy environment and what we've been able to show at least with human iPS cells um, at the bench is that we can take cells that were failing that couldn't relax and restore that capacity by giving them the right extracellular cues. Mm -hmm. so that's really exciting. That's one area. The other thing is you mentioned organs on a chip. Well, I told you a minute ago that we have to make our heart cells mature. Yep. A level that no one else does. What that means is that we cannot just build a heart on a chip, which is immature IPS cells. We can build a mature, an adult heart on a chip, yeah. which all of a sudden means that you can truly use this as a predictor as opposed to uh, a a third hand removed potential predictor of what's going to happen with a given drug or a given reagent. So both of those are lower hanging fruit that we're exploring as a company that are incremental vertical derivative products, choose your word. And and we will be we will be moving forward with those, but but our goal is the heart. And it's not gonna it's not gonna uh, it's not going to change our focus. It's not going to change our concentration. But fortunately, with a little bit of extra money, we can build those and and then bring in revenue in a shorter scale. So so the way we've structured Organomat is our goal to first in human studies with our biologic is in the four, three to four year range. Our goal to first in human with our heart is in the five to seven year range. And both of those are achievable. Both of those are ambitious, but they're also achievable. 
They're completely achievable with what we have now, given the right amounts of resources. Mm -hmm. And there's the there's the key. It's it's going to be finding the right partners, finding the right, uh, finding the people who want to see this moonshot come to fruition. And that's where I'm spending far more of my time and energy. But I think about it this way. If I had 0 0.01%, 0 0.01, no, 0.3 uh, of 0.01%, okay? Mm -hmm. What it's taken to build the Artemis, <laughs> to save your life. Yeah. Seriously. And I don't have leaking rockets we've tested every component along the way so what i say is we're about 85 percent there in terms of all of our components and everything we need to do to to really have this as a robust manufacturing workflow we're about 85 percent there mm -hmm. and we we've literally we have prototypes for all the pieces we've we've run hearts through the process. Now it's really a matter of refining those processes, doing all the right engineering studies to convince ourselves that our specs are right and and build that line. And and we have the right partners who can who can do that with us. Once yeah, it's um yeah, it's it's amazing, and you know, I, I think when you you know when you were mentioning before um, with the sort of the uh, extracellular matrix conditioning biologic, um, I mean that goes you know just for the audience, you know that that goes so much beyond the heart themselves. As, as you know, you know I I, uh, I spent a bunch of time in sort of uh, you know studying the, the the fascinating regenerative cap capacities of our our friends in the amphibian kingdom and, and all that and you know they're very good at doing exactly that in terms of you know not just dealing with the cells but playing around with the with with that extracellular matrix as well and and, and creating sort of that embryonic uh, ecm environment and yeah i mean that's uh whether it's heart liver kidney whatever that's required in regeneration so you're you're onto something major there that's well beyond the uh the the trillion dollar potential of, of right. these hearts so it, yeah it's, we uh, really are and it, and i'm actually very excited about that what i what i don't want you know of course it'd be very exciting to spend a lot of time and energy and but that's a that's a prevention and treatment option yeah, yeah. there are already millions of people who need a cure yep so we need to we need to not lose focus on the heart and and you know that's the conversation that that that's the balance that you got to strike in business now right Absolutely. you have to, how do we stay focused on our on our mission to save lives and the the think about this Ira and I I didn't appreciate this until recently the statistics suggest that in the next 20 years, 90 to 95% of heart transplants will occur in young adults mm. who survived congenital heart disease that would have that they wouldn't have survived previously. Mm. 
And that means that there will no longer be hearts transplanted into older individuals because we don't have the supply. There are plenty of people who are working to change that, but the reality is getting a heart at 20 or getting a heart at 25, while it might save your life, means that you're going to need another heart in your lifetime, likely, or you're going to live to be 30 or 40. I, you know, and you're going to take drugs, $30,000 worth of uh, monthly worth of drugs to keep you from rejecting that heart every day. And if you're not in a situation where you can afford that, you won't make the transplant list. Where, how, how can we, how can we live with that? So our focus is really getting these hearts built. It's got to be a uh, full-time endeavor and build these derivative products because we need to bring in revenue, slightly lower hanging fruit. But honestly, this isn't about, this isn't about there are plenty of resources out there. This yep. is about that. This is about finding the right partners. I had someone call me, and I, I said this at the Life Itself event, but I had someone call me a couple of years ago that actually really pushed me over the edge on this. And, and I haven't talked to him in a while, but I owe him a thanks. He said, Doris, I pay $24,000 a month to hanger my airplane. How much would it cost me to hang her a heart? Now, while I don't think we are going to build hangers of hearts for everyone, I do think there are a number of people in this world who had the resources who could say, okay, I'll give you $100 million and I'll put it in a, an annuity or whatever, and you can live off the whatever, you know, and you got, if I ever need a heart, I'm, I get to be there. And meanwhile, make this real. And I'm, I, I don't, I don't believe this technology, if we do it, the way that we anticipate doing it. This is about not only increasing the number of hearts, it's about decreasing the cost during the lifetime of a patient by 49% because they're no longer taking those drugs every month. And that'll be a whole different conversation that, you know, guess what? Drug companies aren't going to love that. That's a whole different conversation, but it'll be, you won't be paying $30,000 a month for, for these drugs and you won't be in the hospital twice a year because of the consequences of that. And you won't get diabetes and you won't have hypertension and you won't get renal disease all because of the things you have to do to keep your heart. So it'll improve quality of life, it'll improve health span, it'll decrease cost, and it'll allow people who get a heart transplant to really have a life, not have a sort of life. I, I was speaking with a father recently who said, my son had a heart transplant, 
at, when he was 18. And he said, now when some of the conversations we're having is he's saying, well, maybe I shouldn't get married. Maybe I shouldn't have kids because I'm not going to be around. That's not fair. Those are not the conversations somebody who got a new lease on life should be having. And it just tells you that while, while it's a new lease on life, it's not the panacea we think it is. And it's time we start telling the truth about transplant that we point out it's a far from perfect solution. And we have the chance to build the right solution for hearts. Let's let's do it. And I really think it's about finding the right the right partners. Yep. Well, you know I'm your biggest fan, and and I'm rooting you on, and I will help uh, spread the word and and make connections and and try to make this happen for you because um, it's got to happen. Uh, and you know you've. Um, You've always been so eloquent in, in, in talking about it, uh, and and you clearly move this these solutions forward to where it makes perfect sense that in 2022, you it's going to happen. Ira, it will happen. The question is whether it takes five years or 25 years, yeah. and that really just comes down to resources. Honestly, if it. it it's going to be slogging through the steps it takes to make it robust and prove it's robust. And, and those steps will either take, you know, five to seven years and we're doing it in people or 25 to 27 years, depending on the resources. And, and that's just the reality of the world today. Yeah. We'll make it happen. Well, thank you. And thanks for, you know, we, I want to circle back to, to the other thing I've gotten an insight into doing all this and, and moving this to a business and having the word get out about what we're doing is the world of people living with transplanted organs. And there are amazing resources out there and, and also the, the world of congenital heart disease. Parents who experience that need to need support. They mm -hmm. need to be talking to each other. And there's actually a mom who, uh, with whom I've started working, but and and she would be a great. I think she'd be a great uh, person for your podcast because parents need to know where to go when they're when they're all of a sudden faced with this situation they had no idea they were going to be dealing with mm -hmm. and she didn't know her daughter had congenital heart disease until she'd been home from the hospital for two days mm. and then spent the next x amount of time in the NICU with her daughter trying to save her daughter's life and and her, uh, this mom has given me an amazing insight into what parents will do, which is where we started this conversation about lung, right? Yep. When it's your kid, the motivation is different. That's how CIRM got started in California, the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine. That's how Revivacore got to where it is. That's how, so, so I think it's, but but I also know that it's a it's a lonely path 
standing there thinking about the future of your child with today's solutions. Yep. So we need to we need to elevate that conversation. We need to elevate the voices of transplant survivors and of parents who are dealing with these congenital situation heart disease situations for their kids. And if I can help you do that, I'd love to I'd love to have that conversation as well or bring get you access to those people because it it needs to happen. Absolutely. I'd be happy to be happy to. You know, um I, I said I'm reading you on Doris. Um Thank you, Ira. For for everybody um that's out there that's gonna be listening to to this episode uh, of our show across the various podcast networks or watching on our YouTube channel. Uh, again, you've been listening to Dr. Doris Taylor, Chief Executive Officer, Organimet Bio, doing amazing things to help save lives, reduce the cost of healthcare for those with heart disease, making personalized bioengineered human hearts available to anyone that needs them, hopefully in the next five years. Uh, Doris, as usual, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to come tell us this story. Obviously, thank you for everything you've been doing over the years. And as we say on this show, uh, thanks for helping to create a better tomorrow for so many people out there via what you're doing. Uh, amazing story. And, you know, let's keep moving it forward. Thank you, Ira. It's a real pleasure.